welcome to Soccer 101, the show where we tackle some of the biggest topics in soccer, answer the big questions and lay down the fundamentals of the game. Today, we look into a legendary Scot who worked tirelessly to make an incredible impact on the game. No, not Graham Rutherford, it's Sir Alex <laughs> Ferguson we're talking about today. The Glasgow-born striker enjoyed success in his playing career. He was Scottish Division 1 top scorer in 1965-66, but he's probably best known for his managerial career. After big success with Aberdeen and a brief stint taking Scotland to the 1986 World Cup, Fergie was brought in as Manchester United manager in 86, where he took over a struggling giant and spent over two decades coaching over over 1,500 games and creating one of the world's greatest soccer dynasties. Today, we're going to explore his genius and why he's so revered. Who is we who is doing that? Well, I'm Ryan Bailey and I'm welcoming Taylor Rockwell. Hello. Hello. And Graham Rutherford. Hello. Hi there. Um, Graham, before we start, you mentioned before we started recording that you actually wrote your university dissertation <laughs> on Fergie. Yeah, so I did a communications degree and part of that was on leadership and so I uh, I picked someone that I knew a lot about already, which was cheating, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Didn't have to do all that much research. <laughs> uh, and that was uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, who in my formative years as a football manager was just an ever-present and the most dominant figure in football at that time. So even in doing some research for this podcast, I have to say this uh, this was one of the easier ones. I found that there was a lot of stuff I already knew about Ferguson. He's just, uh, as, a, as a Scottish football fan, he has uh, he's just always been there, I, I guess. So yes, I did my dissertation. It was it was on uh, leadership in high pressure and environments and crisis management and stuff like that. Not that there were many crises at Manchester United, but the first few years of his time at Man United was quite interesting in that regard and how he managed mm. to turn it around. Certainly. And didn't Fergie actually give lectures at Harvard on that particular subject after he quit Man United? Am I remembering I, that correctly? Yeah, he definitely has given lectures at Harvard. I uh, I did not go to Harvard, so I not I'm not entirely sure what those oh. lectures were on. But if you yeah, say right. so, I think you're right. I think it was uh, his lectures were primarily focused on like leadership and how to lead mm. in the modern world. Uh, and and Graham, I, I'm glad this one was easy for you. For me, I think I've. It's been a while since we talked about Sir Alex Ferguson, and we see him all the time in the stands these days when we're recording. He he tends to show up for the big games and for the small games as well. But I think as time goes on, it's easy to remember the kind of headline pieces, the hairdryer treatment, and that's what kind of gets boiled down into his legacy. If he won a bunch of stuff, he yelled a bunch. And <laughs> to spend some time reading about him ended up being me spending a lot of time reading about him because it's just so easy to forget all of the many, many, many things he did. I apologize ahead of ahead of time. Because I do really just love this man. I don't think it's smart to idolize anyone because everyone is fundamentally human. But he is a pretty amazing person. And I think as a Man United fan, to do the things he did makes me love him all the more. So I am very excited for this episode. Indeed. Uh, Graham, we should probably start the story right at the beginning. Can you give us a little background on his upbringing in Scotland, please? Absolutely. So when you're you're looking into Ferguson as a character, I, I think it's important to understand that upbringing that he had. So Alex Ferguson, he grew up in Govan in the 1950s and into the 1960s. And for anyone who doesn't know, Govan was traditionally a, a shipbuilding community in Glasgow. It still is a shipbuilding community, but there's only one yard there now. Back in the day, there were multiple yards. They built ships that went around the world. Um, and also at that time, it was one of the most poverty-ridden places in, in Europe. And to understand a lot about Ferguson, you need to understand, I think, personally, the, the, the Scottish psyche at that time. And that psyche still exists to this day to a certain extent. Um, but certainly it was it was true back then. And communities like Govan were left behind by the, the British establishment. Obviously, the most evident um, era of this is when you get to Thatcher decades later but when Ferguson is growing up there are trade union protests and he takes part in those protests he was a uh, 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 he worked in the in the shipyards as, as an apprentice and he credits that movement with his introduction to unity and uh, Ferguson was a, a talented player as, as a teenager but his father said he had to go and do a shipbuilding apprenticeship before he could go professional and um, so at 18 he was playing for St. Johnson as a part-time player, but he was also working in the Govan shipyards. And working at the shipyards is something Ferguson credits with him starting to understand people and what made them tick. And um, he didn't know this at the time. Nobody knew this at the time. But this was, as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the beginning of the greatest man-manager 
in soccer history. And I think man management was the thing that, that Ferguson truly excelled at. And we'll cover this a, a little bit later in the show. But th- that is where the roots of the character is, is in Govan, in that community and in those shipyards. Um, Graham, I think a lot of fans don't realise the success that Fergie had before he got to Manchester United in 1986. He did manage a few teams yeah. in Scotland beforehand. East Stirlingshire, which I presume is your neck of the woods, is it not? Uh, yeah, close enough. Falkirk, weirdly, they don't play in Stirling, but yes, close enough. Yeah, a few years at St Mirren and then some big success with Aberdeen. Yeah, so as you say, um, just to kind of cap Ferguson's career as a, as a player, and I'll keep this short because this is largely about his legacy as, as a manager, but he was actually a very good player. He was Rangers record signing in 1967. He was the, the first ever player to score a hat-trick at Ibrox. Um, he was Rangers statement signing in response to Celtic's Lisbon Lions winning the European Cup in 1967, which kind of tells you the stature that he had as a, as a player back then. He was a Scotland international. Um, but as you say, it, it soon became clear in the early years of management that 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 vocation was his, was his true calling. From St Mirren, he gets the Aberdeen job in 1978 and he's there for eight years. And in those eight years, Ferguson completely upends the, the establishment uh, in, in Scotland, or I should say the established order in Scotland in terms of football. He, he, he wins three Scottish top flight titles, four Scottish Cups, a Scottish League Cup, and most famously, the European Cup Winners' Cup. And Aberdeen beat Bayern Munich in the quarterfinals in that tournament and then they beat Real Madrid in the, in the final and still to this day I can't quite comprehend that this happened it was before my time so I don't have any memories of it and I only have context from history books and documentaries that I've watched and so on but the modern day context of it is that Ferguson left Aberdeen in 1986 and no team has ever won the Scottish title, title besides Celtic and Rangers in that time and the gulf between Celtic and Rangers and the rest of Scottish football is gigantic I'm not sure it's like that in any other country. I was trying to think of this before we recorded. I, I can't think of a country. Yes, sorry. I, I just wanted to. Sorry, I'm going to give you a pause to think about the country because I have to reemphasize what you're saying. There's a great athletic piece on this. Uh, since 1900, since 1900, the Scottish top flight has been won by a club other than Rangers or Celtic on only 15 occasions in total. Ferguson won it three times in eight years with Aberdeen. So I think that shows yeah. you the kind of success he had with a relatively small club. He was able to do very big things, including beat that Madrid team. Absolutely. And and he didn't just win with Aberdeen. He made he made them a dominant team in Scotland. And to win trophies, he won the sorry, European trophies. He won the Super Cup as well. For me, obviously, his, his, his legacy and the dynasty that he built in Manchester United is maybe the headline act. That's what maybe people remember most about him. But for me, Aberdeen is his greatest achievement. And that was that was where he really made a name for himself. And he, he obviously gets the Manchester United job from that point. He and did. I think... And I think those teams, sorry, Ryan, those teams as well, you you can see the blueprint of what made him successful at Manchester United with them. Going back to East Stirlingshire, he's, I think he was the one out like driving around trying to create fan engagement and sell tickets, even as a player. I read a story about how he had his wife make all the pregame meals for the players because he thought the meals they were being served was too heavy. He was all about that individual effort to elevate the team to make them better than the sum of their parts, culminating in that Cup Winners' Cup final. Uh, a quote from then Madrid manager Alfredo Di Stefano, that was not a football team we met, it was an unstoppable spirit. And that feels very, like, feels like a very good way to explain what he was able to do with Manchester mm. United, is create this unstoppable spirit in a club that were very much stoppable when he took over. Taylor, you've given me new perspective there. If his wife, he tried to get his wife to make meals for the teams to improve their diets, make the food less heavy. Is that his biggest achievement, trying to change Scottish people's diets in the 1980s? <laughs> I, it, it made me, uh, again, Homerism here, it made me like him a lot because it seemed to be that, I think this goes back to his upbringing, but family was such an important part of his life, but also of what he thought it should be in players' lives. Uh, when players, like when their kids would have holidays or school days off, he would have the players bring the kids to training and have staff look after them or they'd be involved to give wives and girlfriends a break. Ferguson himself was always involved in his home life. He He cooked, he cleaned, he wasn't sort of like divisive when it came to uh the the roles of homemakers and i don't know i just think he he did a lot with changing 
the ideas changing, dynamics changing, diet and the way people approach drinking culture as well. So, yeah, I think we can add him changing Scottish cuisine as well. Why not? <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Well, Taylor, um, as, as Graham said, the, the, the gig at Aberdeen earned him the gig at Manchester United mm. in November uh, 1986 when Ron Atkinson was fired. And this was a Man- Manchester United team who was struggling. They were kind of mid-table-ish. Um, and it took Ferguson quite a long time to get the rails the train back on the rails shall we say Mm. uh he was given more rope than a manchester united manager will be given today yeah undeniably so and i think again you hear those stories about how he if he hadn't win that one game in the fa cup then he would have been sacked by all accounts that's not quite the case but it did feel like there was the tide was beginning to turn there was pressure put upon him and i think if he had inherited Manchester United, after Sir Alex Ferguson managed it, I think that pressure would just be so ridiculous compared to where they were as a club. I don't think there was nearly as much attention on them at that point in the 80s. So I think that does give him that buffer to build up relationships and start to mold the club on the on the pitch, certainly to his ideals, but very much off the pitch as well. And he starts changing the way they operate and the stru- the structure of the club, the overall organization, the staff themselves and some of the positions. And I think, yeah, you don't have the time to do that in a year or two right now. That's a thing that you can do once you've been there for a good long while. And in this case... That was what happened. He was there for long enough to start changing the identity of the club, and then the identity was changed, and it became about winning. It did indeed. And as a as a soccer fan who used to go to Premier League games in the 90s, this is kind of my era, the, the, the peak Fergie era. I'm talking sort of 95 to 2000-ish, if you will, when I was a fan watching games at Selhurst Park where it was a real event when Manchester United came to town, not only because they brought a lot of away fans with them, but it was special to have Fergie on the sidelines. It was special to have like class of 92 players and David Beckham come to town because Man United were the biggest team. It wasn't like we had a Man City Liverpool title race. It was just them. They were the biggest team. It was Blackburn and Newcastle and those kind of teams competing against Man United, this behemoth at the time. And Graham, perhaps the biggest achievement with Manchester United came, what, a good 13 years into so Alex Ferguson's tenure um, in 1998-1999. Yeah, so that that for me and for a lot of people is his, his crowning glory at Manchester United. Uh, the purest success, I would say, of, of the 26 years he's, he ended up uh, spending at the club. And in 1999, Manchester United, they win the treble, as it's known, which is the, the three biggest trophies that were available to them. So the Premier League title, the FA Cup and the Champions League and it hadn't been done before in the modern era certainly not in the Premier League era and it hasn't been done since and it's this big landmark achievement at any time it's happening a lot right now with Liverpool talk of quadruple and City trebles and so on and any time we get to this season and there's there's a good team it gets mentioned time and time again and invariably maybe this is the season that actually happens again but invariably teams fall short of it because it's such an incredible achievement and um, the 1999 treble was the, the culmination of a process that started in 92 when you had the class of 92 and um, that's the the youth academy team that included the likes of David Beckham, Gary Neville, Phil Neville, Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes, Nicky Butt, they were all on that youth academy team and they all, they all become key figures for Manchester United in the 90s when it was unusual for so many young players to be fast-tracked into the first team at the same time. And 1999 was the 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 purest justification for Ferguson where all of those players or, or most of those players are first-team figures for United as they, as they uh, win all three trophies. The drama of some of those moments, as I'm sure uh, uh, Taylor will, will tell us about, yeah. were incredible. The, the most famous one being the two, minute, the two goals in two minutes against Bayern Munich in the Champions League final, which I know Liverpool come back from 3-0 down against AC Milan in 2005 from halftime, but two goals in two minutes to win a game from 1-0 down, that for me is the most dramatic victory in Champions League history because it's a final and I'm not sure we'll see that again, that sort of thing. And then you have the comeback against Juventus in the semi-final, the Giggs mm. goal against Arsenal in the FA Cup semi-final. So it wasn't just a good team. It was a, a team that provided moments of excitement. They played good football and moments of drama as well. And that's that's why I think for all that Manchester City right now are an undeniably great team, they're, they're, they maybe don't 
create those moments of excitement in the same way that, that Ferguson's Mayonetti did back in 99 and that's why they're still revered to this day. Taylor, I'm not a Man United fan, far from it. In fact, back in those days, I was frustrated with Man United because living in London, everyone was a Man United fan and it used to bother me they didn't support the local London teams instead. That's another story because they were a dominant team. But that time in 99, sort of April, May of 99, it was so incredibly exciting, even for me who didn't have a dog in the fight. Just that, you know, the, the semi-final of the FA Cup uh, against uh, Arsenal at Villa Park where Ryan Giggs scored that famous um, solo goal. And then you've got the, the FA Cup final and the Champions League final and the last day of the Premier League, all in the space of like a couple of weeks. And for that team to reach that level under Fergie's guidance in that tiny period is really incredible. Absolutely. And I think, uh, like, to, to go back to the beginning of the season, uh, and a point Graham made about his man, man management capabilities, this is also the season after the 98 World Cup in which Beckham gets sent off and is completely vilified right. and I think thinks about leaving the club, gets talked into staying, is sort of brought back into the fold, and it ends with United winning a treble. I think that's no small feat on his part and has players with downturns in form. I think Peter Schmeichel has a, a bad run for a while. He gets sent on holiday and is allowed to kind of collect himself and I think that was another aspect of Ferguson is as long as you're playing the best of your ability and working as hard as you can if something's going wrong if there's other things off the pitch that are distracting you we can find a way to make it work we can find a way to solve those things and get you back in when you're ready and and it wasn't just win or you're out I think it was about kind of identifying the human component of things and then speaking to that to get the best out of a player culminating in that final month where they go on this ridiculous run and they still make it so hard for themselves as they did many times that season even in the Champions League final I think they go that one nil down they have their own woodwork hit a couple times they don't look much like scoring such that when the trophy leaves the place where it's being kept for the uh, for the final, I think they already have the Bayern ribbons on it, and by the time it gets down to ground level, Manchester United are two one up. You can see that kind of rapid fire change, and I'm with Graham. Down three nil to fight back and get the win is a major comeback, but the drama and the spectacle of Man United winning the final the way they did, and without their two starting central midfielders, no Roy Keane, no Paul Scholes in that game, it's two substitutes who get the goals. It speaks, I think, a lot to his man management and tactical management. On top of that. It does. Uh, Graham, perhaps a key part of his character, Alex Ferguson's character, professionally at least, is the rivalries that he had created. And I think of different periods for this. There's Kevin Keegan in the 90s, there's Arsene Wenger sort of around the turn of the millennium, and then after that, Rafa Benitez. And those kind of shapes... Mourinho as well. I'd I'd count Mourinho in there too. That's a good chat. Of course, he's 26 years, he's had so many. Um, But but those rivalries sort of define how we see him. Yeah, and I'm a big believer in rivalry making the legacy of athletes, in this case uh, football managers, greater. And I'm going to use a, indulge me for a moment here, I'm going to use a tennis example, right? So Pete Sampras is arguably for a long time the best male player of all time, but he dominates at a time when the combination, uh, the competition, sorry, isn't really all that stiff. I know there's Andre Agassi and so on, but it's, it, towards the, the, the 2000s, it's not that stiff. Then comes along Federer and Nadal and Djokovic, and I would insert my boy Murray in there for a, a period as well. Sure. And that rivalry between them just makes that era greater than anything we ever saw during the Sampras era, where he kind of has things to himself. And you have similar with the Messi-Ronaldo era. I think that that makes both of their legacies greater in tandem. And in the late 90s and, and early 2000s, you have, as you say, all those those rivalries that Ferguson has with, with opposition managers. So Kevin Keegan, I would say that was a slightly one-sided rivalry where Minot had won everything and Keegan kind of crumbled under the, the weight of the mind games. And there was I that famous... Uh, yeah, I love, I, I love it. I love it. The infamous interview where you, unfortunately for Keegan, you could just kind of see him crumbling before your eyes and Newcastle conceded a, a huge lead in that title race that season and Man United win the title but it really takes until the arrival of Arsene Wenger for someone on Ferguson's level to, to come along and um, in many ways Ferguson and Wenger were polar opposites you had the old school authoritarian who exudes working class spirit and then you had the new age revolutionary who exudes continental continental sophistication and was nicknamed the professor but you also had a lot that linked them as well. So I thought both Ferguson and Wenger yeah. were, were fighters as managers. Uh, they never backed down and their teams never backed down either. And the battles between Arsenal and United in the early 2000s in particular 
were fierce as anything. Mm. Um, and to be honest, you look at what we have now between City and Liverpool and what you had between Arsenal and United in that period makes what we have now look, look pretty tame. And, and I think Wenger, I, I identify him in particular because it felt like he was for a period Ferguson's equal. And yet in the end, Ferguson still finds a way to generally get the better of him. And obviously he has the greater period of longevity than, than Arsene Wenger. But for me, that Ferguson Wenger era, was kind of the Premier League at its yeah. best. Maybe that's because that was my; those were my formative years, and maybe everyone says that about their formative years, their formative years. But that that was peak Premier League for me. I think that rivalry with Wenger also shows two, I think, major parts of Ferguson's personality. One that I think maybe flies under the radar a little bit. Graham, I, I agree with you. I think there's a ton of similarities between Wenger and Ferguson. One I think I was less familiar with until I started researching this is how a big part of Ferguson's what comes next, how do we keep winning, how do we stay at the forefront of football was by embracing new ideas. So one anecdote I read about was I think a vision scientist from the University of Liverpool, which felt like it could have been a trap, uh, wrote him a letter saying <laughs> that the informing him that the gray jerseys, like gray is a difficult color to track, I guess, when in motion. And it was this idea that the gray jerseys might be hindering their performance. They stop wearing those gray jerseys. He ends up bringing in that scientist to be a consultant for the team and work on how to improve peripheral vision. He gets a letter from a mattress supplier about ways to kind of do a branded partnership. And that becomes uh, sleep analysis and custom mattresses for the players. And they create a sleep center. So he's on the cutting edge of, of sports psychology, of sports science and I think there was resentment that Wenger got this title of he was the philosopher he was the professor when Ferguson felt like we're doing these same things too and not getting credit for it now I'm a little bit angry and I think that anger also comes out in the us versus them mentality that seems to have been a key part of his career as a player and as a manager. I loved all the stories about how often it would be the BBC wants us to lose, the press wants us to lose. Maybe that's less fun for the people who were actually in the media at the time, but it seems like that was a huge tool he would always use is everybody loves this team, everybody loves that team. Mm -hmm. Phil Neville had a story about in the lead up to uh, a game against Arsenal when United are like eight points behind them in the table. He spent the whole week at training, just, like every time somebody would do something wrong, I guess just being very petty. But if a ball was played out of bounds, he would say, like, Arsenal would have kept that in bounds. Everybody knows Arsenal can do that. Arsenal could have scored that goal. And it just created this anger that by the time there's kickoff, all of the United players have come to hate Arsenal, even though it's Sir Alex Ferguson who's doing all of this work. And I think that sort of ability to play upon those big personalities to motivate his team also sets him apart. I didn't know the anecdote about the mattresses, Taylor. That's interesting as well. Just shows he was streets ahead of his time. He could have done podcast adverts um, these days, couldn't he? No. Um, <laughs> the idea of Sir Alex Ferguson doing a podcast, Ed Reed, <laughs> fills me with joy because halfway through it would have just turned, turned into a rant, for sure. This mattress fits in a box? Anyway, Graham, um, 26 years at Manchester United. He signed off in the most perfect way possible, did he not? Well, maybe, maybe there's, a, there's a note to add there in the, the legacy he left with the team he left behind uh, at Manchester United. But he did go off with a win. He did. And he won the, the Premier League title in his, his final season. Um, obviously, the season before was the, the Aguero moment where Man United lose the title to Manchester City on uh, on goal difference. I actually don't know. I don't know if he's ever talked about this, but I, I don't know if this, his plan was to, to retire then if he'd won that title. But it certainly felt like that, that final season really felt like he was so determined to win that Premier League title to sign off in, in, in style. He signs Robin Van Persie, best striker in the in the country at, the, at that time, just to give his team a little bit more firepower. But if you look at the rest of that Manchester United team, it was nowhere near as strong as it had been in years gone by. It was a, a, a bit of an ageing core. You still had players like Giggs and Scholes being very in, important. At times, he used Fabio De Silva and John O'Shea as a midfield too, which was a, <laughs> was a choice, particularly when Paul Pogba was, was right there waiting. And actually, I think, I can't remember what game it is that he used that as a midfield too, but Pogba cites that as a, one of the games that made him think his future wasn't at Manchester United. But Ferguson squeezed as much as he could out of that team. Um, and as I say, it was the, it was the perfect way to, to sign off. And that was the last time Manchester United had won the Premier League title. They've not won it in the nine years since. It doesn't feel like they're going to win it anytime soon, certainly in the next two to three years. And uh, one of Ferguson's best qualities for me was, and I think we might talk about this a little bit later, but he knew when players were were finished 
um, or when their stock was about to dip and, and he would move them on when others couldn't, couldn't see that. Um, and I think he knew when to move himself on, when to, when to step aside. Mm. Keep in mind that Ferguson was initially going to retire in 2002. He, he said he was going to retire back then, but he was talked out of it by his wife, his wife, Kathy, and it felt like he still had a lot to offer at that time. But by 2013, I think he knew that one, Manchester United were at a tipping point under the Glazers where he maybe wasn't getting the investment in the squad that he needed to compete with Manchester City who were spending hundreds and hundreds of millions and then two the modern game it felt like there was a tipping point where maybe he was going to get left behind a little bit and he was going to become a little bit too old school it always been one of his best qualities that he'd retained that that old schoolness but it, it it felt like the game was moving on a little bit and I think there is a lot of evidence in the time that has passed since to suggest that he was right because I'm I'm not so sure as good a manager as he was I'm not so sure how Ferguson does in the current generation and certainly at Manchester United I feel like the structure and everything he, he certainly wouldn't be able to to keep that that club successful with the Glazers as the owners so mm. it felt like he knew that was the time to step aside and, and there's a huge value to that because otherwise he suffers the fate that Arsene Wenger does where he kind of is shuffled out the back door and fans are protesting against him or that could I should I shouldn't say that was a that would be a certainty but that is a, a potential scenario that that could have happened to, to Ferguson but he kind of protected himself from that he did indeed so we've got into Fergie's origins we've talked about his successes and his long and illustrious career we should dig in a little more into what made the man though his core beliefs the qualities he had how he became so successful. So we're going to take a quick break and we're going to dig into that right afterwards, right after we've heard an ad not read by Fergie. Back soon. Today's episode of Soccer 101 is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Longtime sponsors ExpressVPN would like to let you know that using the internet without ExpressVPN is like checking in your baggage at the airport without a lock. Did not realize you were supposed to lock your check-ins. Now I'm slightly paranoid because if you think your stuff is kept private... You never know who's going through it, and that applies to your internet activity as well. When you go online without a VPN, internet service providers, ISPs, can see every single website you visit. I won't even pause to let that sink in, because that could be too terrifying. They can legally sell this information without your consent to ad companies and tech giants who then use your data to target you. But when you use ExpressVPN, you can browse anonymously because ISPs cannot see your online activity. You become anonymous via a secure VPN server. Your data is also encrypted for maximum protection. Secure your online activity today by visiting expressvpn.com slash soccer today. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash soccer. And you can get an extra three months for free. ExpressVPN.com slash soccer. Thank you very much to ExpressVPN for making me paranoid about airline travel, securing the internet, and sponsoring today's episode. Welcome back to Soccer 101. We are talking about Sir Alex Ferguson, a knight of the realm, don't you believe? Um, Taylor. Yes, sir. His core beliefs the things that motivated him, what were his traits that brought success to his door? Uh, for me, the biggest one, I think, was an expectation that everyone work as hard as they possibly could. And that is obvious, I think, when it comes to, to football. Everybody's got to work hard if you want to win. But I think it, it was also the kind of surrounding idea of do your job, do it as well as you can. And if I believe that you're doing it as well as you can, then I'm not going to come in for you if you have a bad game. Because, yeah, you did what I asked of you. Uh, you, you executed the game plan as best you could. You had a bad day. That, so be it. And I think so many players talked about that, yes, he's famous for the hairdryer treatment and for screaming at players when he felt like they were underperforming. But I think that's the key thing is when he felt like they weren't as focused, when they weren't as locked in on their obligations to their team and their responsibilities to that team, that's when he would get really frustrated. But so much of it was about that individual approach to management and the idea that you motivate your team properly, you instill in them the belief that fight as hard as you can, but enjoy yourself and eventually you'll get the win. And I think that also spread to the staff and the front office and every single thing that was happening with Manchester United, why they become such a big club on the commercial side of things, on the scouting side of things. Every aspect of it, I think, goes back to Ferguson looking for that next advantage, looking for that next way to find a way and to keep working and to keep winning. And, and so much of what that club's DNA is now, I think, is rooted in Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah. And Graham, you mentioned it earlier about the, the sports science aspect of, of Ferguson's approach, because 
Arsene Wenger is often um, credited with being a pioneer in that respect and you know, getting his players maybe not to go to the pub the night before a game, maybe not to eat very heavy foods. Um, but you, you mentioned how Ferguson was was on that train already. And that sort of speaks to a, a greater um, aspect of his of his beliefs in, in sort of being ahead of the curve. Yeah, and, and I think Ferguson a lot of the time is, is spoken about as maybe not the, the, ta- the, the sharpest tactically yeah. as well, if we're looking at how he would set up a team. But I, I do think that is, that's unfair on him because if you look at if we skip a little bit ahead to the the team that won his second Champions League title in 2008 um the way that that team that that front line played with Tevez and Rooney and Ronaldo in particular and then you add Berbatov into the mix the season after that as well that feels that feels very much ahead of its time and that that is a front line that you would have seen you know Pep Guardiola playing or uh, particularly Jurgen Klopp with that front three where they all kind of interchange and and uh, make the most of space and particularly with uh, Rooney and Tevez I remember when Tevez signed for Manchester United I I, I used to pick when I was on holiday in Italy and I, I used to get the newspaper from the caravan campsite that I was at and that was how I got the transfer speculation or the transfer news when I was away during the summer and the school holidays I remember Carlos Tevez going to Manchester United and thinking to myself well, that's not going to work because they've got Wayne Rooney who basically does the same job. But Sir Alex Ferguson found a way to merge them together. And, and yeah, things like that make me think he gets a, a bit of a hard rap in terms of how he uh, how he's seen as being very old school. And I've used that, that word a lot myself, so I'm maybe at fault as well. But he was ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. I mean, I think he was old school in that sort of no-nonsense disposition, but I think Diego Simeone could be seen as being a little bit old school. And Graham, I agree with you. I think he deserves more credit for his tactical decisions on occasion, but I also think like there was so much talk near the end of his time at Manchester United about how like he wasn't actually running first team training and he wasn't actually that hands-on with the team and there weren't as many like in-game decisions from a tactic side coming from him, but... As I understand it, that was uh, correct, but also entirely by design. I think earlier on in the 90s and early 2000s, I think he is much more involvement in the day-to-day operation of the team, what tactics they're playing, how they're playing, and certainly continues to be involved in it. But the other thing I kept hearing about uh, or kept reading about uh, in preparing for this one was about how he was basically amongst his chief skills was that he was a master delegator and that when he found people who had the same values, had the same beliefs, had the same ideas, and that same work ethic, he left them alone and let them operate. And I think was a big believer in you hire the right people, you empower them, and then you let them go do what they need to do so you can focus on other things. And that became coaching. He brings in Steve McLaren, who at the time was very big and early on into video analysis and analyzing training sessions and analyzing games for different advanced stats that could then be utilized to determine patterns of play. McLaren as an assistant helps them win titles. He brings in Carlos Quiroz, that false nine, That's the uh, idea one. of swapping wings. Uh, sorry, Graham, what'd you say? I just said Quiroz was a key one. I felt like yeah, that was right? a bit of a turning point for Ferguson because people forget the kind of 2004, 2005 time. It's, um, his United team yeah. finished third, I think, in the Premier League at that time. And there was a lot of talk of maybe Ferguson was losing it. Quiroz comes in and just adds kind of a little bit more structure and might next start doing better in Europe at that time as well. So yep. that, uh, that uh, kind of feeds into what you're saying there, Taylor, about when he finds the right people, he's happy to change his ways. And there's not necessarily the stubbornness that maybe someone like Arsene Wenger had who wouldn't change in that way. Yeah, exactly. And and so Kiroz has like fa- ideas about false nines and about wingers switching sides. And it's uh, Rene Mullenstein who's running training and is allowed to make decisions. But you still get moments like when Ferguson decides I'm taking off a fullback and playing Ryan Giggs at fullback and then we're going to be very attacking. And that makes everybody puzzled. But it ends up I think they were 2-0 down when he makes that change at halftime. They end up winning four to two. And so there is a sort of belief in there are people who know more than I do uh, or who have studied things in a certain way that I have not. So I should listen to them and and incorporate them into what I'm doing. It's it's a Ted Lasso principle. Uh, and I think the kind of willingness to do that shows a flexibility in his approach that is to be commended. And then also bringing in people and empowering them means that they're bringing their own connections. And in Carlos Quiroz's case, it means that there's a direct connection to Cristiano Ronaldo. And I think some of the signings he makes even are because of the relationships that he forms and the sort of the positive like uh, force he is uh, in that club at the same time. 
I think when I think of some of his core ethos as well, ethos, ethos, is um, the, the idea that no one's bigger than the club as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you, don't, if you don't do the hard graft, you don't do what you're supposed to do, then you don't belong here. And you can see examples of that maybe with Paul Pogba not breaking through into his team. He didn't see what he needed to see in Paul Pogba, who was eventually let go for free and bought back at great expense in the post-Ferguson era. And with David Beckham, who um, was, you know, was let go to Real Madrid. He had a very difficult few years, as you mentioned earlier, Taylor, when uh, after the uh, World Cup in 98. But he's got through that, but then eventually went to Real Madrid. Um, with Ferguson later saying he thought that he was being, um, his attentions were being diverted by his celebrity and his his pop star wife and so on. And he felt that that was a time to, to, to um, get him out of the mixer, which was very interesting. Not What do you think in the context of like PSG now? Um, Ferguson, if he was there calling the shots, I don't think some no. of the me- megastars there will be ruling the roost quite like they do. I suppose he had re- really good control uh, over the egos as well, Taylor. Yeah, he did. And and I think that is Ronaldo as well. I think there's there's the kind of under the table agreement that Ronaldo will play one more season and then move to Madrid. And that was right on the verge of maybe him becoming bigger than the club. But at the same time, by all accounts, I think Sir Alex Ferguson saw Ronaldo as this once-in-a-generation player who Mm. could sort of do no wrong and was early on could. And I think his teammates and the manager let him know that he was doing wrong repeatedly and often. Uh, But I think as he went on, I think he really trusted Ronaldo. It's another player who, if you follow that pattern of of delegating, if you're delegating responsibility to, we're going to start you on the left, but we're going to use you as a more central forward. We're going to let you score goals. We're going to back you to create chances. I don't really have much of an issue with him kind of prolonging that one as opposed to letting Ronaldo leave. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. I think he moves on Beckham. Uh, uh, Ruud van Nistelrooy would be one. Yap Stam is one that's often discussed maybe in a more negative way for moving him on prematurely. And I think just as importantly, similar to the Beckham uh, situation after the World Cup, he also knew when not to move players on, when to try to pick them up. And that happens with Beckham after the World Cup. It happens with Ronaldo after the incident at the Euros with Rooney, uh, reported he flies to Portugal to convince Ronaldo not to leave the club and that ends up kind of further connecting them, bringing them even closer. Eric Cantona yeah. wants to leave the club after the Selhurst Park incident and again Ferguson flies over convinces him to stay. The next season I think they win seven of their second half games, uh, second half of the season games by a scoreline of 1-0. Cantona scores five uh, uh, scores five of those 1-0 games. So <laughs> you see the importance of bre- of keeping those players when it feels like maybe other managers would have let them go yeah. because of the chaos behind them. And I think that also is to his credit. I think Ferguson, one of his best strengths, if I had to boil it down to his greatest strength as, as a character, in my opinion, it's that he knew what individual people needed. And that goes yeah. back to what I said about Ferguson... Yep learning how to manage people during his time in, in the shipyards and, and govern. He understood people in a few, in a way that few do. And there's a si- silly little anecdote that I found that, that illustrates this. So Manchester United are at a, an official club event and the players are required to wear official club suits. Ferguson was always very mm. big on, on the club suits. Uh, and Giggs walks in with his top button undone oh and Ferguson goes absolutely through him. Uh, you know, you're, re- you're representing Manchester United, get that button done up, that, that sort of thing. Next thing, Eric Cantona walks in and he's wearing a white linen suit <laughs> and red Nike trainers. And obviously every player sitting there in their club suits is thinking, here we go. <laughs> but Ferguson goes over to Cantona, he shakes his hand, he turns to the rest of the players and he goes... Now that's style, lads. And I just think Ferguson, he knew he couldn't treat Cantona in the same way as the rest. He needed that little bit of freedom, that little bit of creativity. And while that may have, you know, ticked off some of the players sitting there thinking, why is this guy getting treated differently to us? That was to the benefit of that team. And Cantona was obviously a, a massive figure for that team. And as I say, that, that silly little anecdote yeah. just illustrates what I, I think about Ferguson. He knew how to deal with people. I, th- I, think- I didn't. I didn't know that one. Sorry, Ryan. Uh, but I, I have to jump in here because uh, it connects to another one. Uh, the 1996 FA Cup final versus Liverpool. Graham, do you know where I'm going with this? The suits. The suits. Yes. <laughs> uh, Liverpool turned up in white suits uh, for like the, the, the pregame festivities. Fergie's entire team talk for that game was, uh, I don't need to say anything now. Just don't come back in here if they beat you. He was so dismayed by white suits, cream suits being worn uh, by Liverpool that he no longer took them seriously. So, yes, not just 
the attire, but I think also uh, to that uh, pregame pep talk, the ability to know what the players needed to hear, when they needed to be yelled at, when they needed to be encouraged, and when they needed to be reminded that, lads, it's Tottenham. You can you can tell a lot about a manager <laughs> from how former players speak about him you know, after yeah. the fact. Uh, you think about Sir Bobby Robson and all the players who who worked under him who had the utmost respect. Ronaldo, the R9 Ronaldo, talks to him, talks about him like he's his dad. Like, Mr. Robson is amazing, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, and it's the same thing with Alex Ferguson. There was a, 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 some footage a few years ago at a Real Madrid game with Ronaldo, Cristiano yeah. Ronaldo, in the tunnel speaking to Ferguson. I think you, you remember that, Taylor? Yeah. And it was, it was him sort of saying, oh, hello, Mr. Ferguson, calling him, addressing him as Mr. Ferguson, as he always does, sort of sheepishly looking down like he's, you know, the, just the incredible respect that his former players have. And this Ferguson is a, is a tough man. He worked these players hard. He, you know, he gave them no quarter most of the time. But they still have the respect for him because he has that winning mentality, because he has those man management skills. And with all due respect to someone like Antonio Conte, who you know gets, gets a, a rap for working his players too hard, oh, we don't want to run laps today. I can imagine people running through brick walls for Fergie in a different way, Taylor. Yeah, I, I think so too, because the, the flip side to the manager who demands, like, like, above and beyond levels of energy and work is that sometimes when they start to publicly talk about the team, talk about people in the staff or the players themselves, it, it, it sort of betrays that work a little bit. And that seems to have been another thing that is talked about so often is that Fergie may have would have told you to your face, this player is better than you. This young kid from the class of 92 is about to supplant you in the lineup and you need to prepare yourself for that. And that angered players, but at the same time, he dealt with them straight up and it wasn't, in the press saying, yeah, he's just not good enough. We got to look at some other options. And so I think there was this idea that there was logic behind the intensity of his training and the intensity of his expectations and a belief that if you do what he asks, ultimately he's asking you for a reason and he's not going to throw you under the bus. He'll throw everyone else out of the bus, just not his own players. <laughs> exactly. Um, Graham, at Bayern Munich or in Germany, they had this concept of Bayern Dussel, Bayern Luck, where they always seem to be able to... Um, get victories in the dying minutes or maybe the referee gives them a bit of favor they have extra time and they get results in the dying minutes and that's a concept we know in the premier league era as fergie time and you can't really place it down to the referees i mean the conspiracy theorists might do that it's about ferguson coaching teams who can get results done in the nick of time yeah and and i think that if we're going to class that in a in a broader sense, I think that's down to winning mentality. Yeah, uh, and I, and I'm a strong believer, as I might have referenced earlier, that that Ferguson's winning mentality is is rooted in that up that upbringing where people had to make things happen for themselves because nobody else is going to make it happen for you, and so pl- players just are able to retain that focus for the full ninety minutes when others when others crumble, and it just happened time and time again for Ferguson's Manchester United as as I said earlier the the. The, the Champions League final in, in 1999, the countless Premier League games, so many comebacks from, from Manchester United as well throughout the, the Ferguson era. And yeah, it just, it just comes down to, to, to winning mentality. And it wasn't yeah. something he learned over the course of his career either. There's a perfect example of this during his time as Aberdeen manager when uh, obviously in the kind of early phase of his career and Aberdeen have just won the 1983 Scottish Cup final against Rangers and Ferguson is absolutely furious with the performance in the in the post-match interview this is the quote keep in mind Aberdeen have just won the Scottish Cup by beating Rangers we're the luckiest team in the world we it was a disgrace of a performance Miller and McLeish won the cup for Aberdeen Miller and McLeish played Rangers themselves it was a disgrace of a performance and I'm not caring. Winning cups doesn't matter. Our standards have been set a long time ago and we're not going to accept that from any Aberdeen team. The way we sh- uh, There's no way we should take any glory from that. And I think that, that just gives you maybe an insight into a man who didn't just want his teams to win. He wanted his teams to, to dominate and everything that, that what you're talking about there Ryan the, the ability to go for 95 96 minutes mm. just comes from that desire to to win that he manages to yeah. uh, instill in his players yeah, yeah and I, I guess I should clarify sometimes he would criticize his players or his teams <laughs> thank you for that quote Graham <laughs> uh, but I think you're absolutely right that winning mentality 
is just so important. Uh, Nikki Butt was talking about how in their preparations, they were never focused on the opposition's strengths or what the opposition was going to try to do. They were only focused on the weaknesses because their training, the way they drilled, was that we are going to be the dominant team. We are going to be relentless. That's how we train. There was a ruthlessness to their training. Uh, Darren Fletcher talked about it in an interview with Graham Hunter a few years ago for his podcast, the second best Scottish Graham, I should say. But I, I think the drill that they would do was called the box and it was as far as i understand basically just rondos basically just 5v2s but they were organized by skill level by intensity whatever you want to go with but the top tier one that was the the name one that had roy Keane, uh paul Scholes, ryan giggs gary neville it was the one where you knew if you were going in you had to be at the tippy top of your game and if you weren't uh, and new signings were often thrown in there to see what would happen and then moved out of there pretty quickly you basically had to raise your game and play to that level of expectation or you were told pretty quickly you're not at the level you need to be. And that intensity, that ruthlessness in training, it's a thing that we've seen with the U.S. women's national team, for example. It 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 stays with the team. And I think if you are only trained to work as hard as you can to never stop competing and only focus on your opponent's vulnerabilities – at some point, you're going to keep that belief in the 90th minute when the other team is very tired and has done everything they can. And if you continue to have that belief, I think it goes a long way towards explaining why Manchester United were able to get so many results so late. Never stop, never stopping, to quote yeah. The Lonely Island. Um, one, <laughs> That's a good movie. Uh, That's a good movie. It really is. It's underrated. One um, quality we really should emphasize as well, um, Graham, is the commitment to youth that Sir Alex Ferguson had. A very famous quote from, the, I think, the beginning of the 93-94 Premier League season from Alan Hansen, former Liverpool legend Alan Hansen, uh-huh. on Match of the Day after um, Man United didn't start the season very well. His quote, you'll never win anything with kids. Mm. Those kids turning out to be mm. the very famous <laughs> class of 92 who did go on to win that Premier League season and many others, Graham. Yeah, that was a freezing cold take from Mr Hansen. <laughs> that did not age particularly well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Ferguson's commitment to youth is is, uh, is pretty legendary. I don't think, just to provide a caveat, I, I don't think we should pretend that Ferguson didn't spend money and didn't make big signings, mm-hmm. particularly in the 90s. United would go out sometimes and, and just sign the best player in the country every so often. Andy Cole, Roy Keane, Eric Cantona, Mark Hughes, Gary Pallister, all kind of record signings in, in the 90s. However... There was, there was always that commitment to youth, that underlying commitment, commitment to youth. And it's been there all, it was there all the way through Ferguson's United career, the class of 92, as, as we've uh, already mentioned. But then even into the 2000s, admittedly, the standard of player is never really as high again as the class of 92, because that would have been almost impossible to replicate that. But you have Darren Fletcher, John O'Shea, Danny Welbeck, Tom Cleverley, and Manchester United have currently gone. This is something that actually has continued. Yeah. It's one of the few things that United, I feel, have continued in the post-Ferguson era is there's always a commitment to bringing through at least one or two players every few seasons. And they've gone 83 years since they last had a matchday squad that didn't have a youth academy graduate in it. And that is a key part of Manchester United's identity as, as a club. And I think you have two men primarily to, to thank for that. You have Sir Matt Busby in the 50s and 60s. And then the other one is obviously Sir Alex Ferguson as well. So it's, it's a big part of his legacy. Indeed. Um, it'll be remiss, gents, if we didn't talk about some of his controversies as yeah. well. Um, Paul Pogba uh, might be regarded as a controversy, brought in in great danger from Le Havre, basically. United got in a lot of trouble um, for tapping him up um, and then obviously wasn't brought into the squad and was brought back at great expense, as I mentioned earlier. I don't know whether you can call that a controversy, but there were others. Um, the B- He never spoke to the BBC, uh, the British um, broadcaster, after they aired a documentary, uh, which was he felt was um, unfair about his son, his son Jason, who was an agent. Um, they He felt that that was... Uh, it, treated him very poorly yeah. and he, even after 2011 when it became mandatory for managers to speak to the BBC uh, Man United just paid the fines on his behalf so he never spoke to them again um, there's the David Beckham boot incident 2003 did, oh, he, yeah. did he kick a boot at him Graham or did yeah. he throw it I think he kicked it did yeah, he not Taylor it. I think he, he kicked, kicked it, it. Yeah. he says accidentally I don't know how you kick a boot at David Beckham uh, yeah. but or like or like kick it accidentally into his face but yes yes uh, struck <laughs> yeah. him with a boot uh, cut him and then Beckham let those photographs be taken, and then Beckham was sold to Real Madrid. 
Indeed. And uh, let's, lest we forget his rather um, bristling uh, relationship with referees and officials quite a lot of the time. 15 touchline bans, yeah. 75,000 in fines for abusing referees as well, Graham. So if, even though there are these controversies, and, and there's probably a few more to mention as well, it doesn't yeah. really taint his legacy, does it? No, it doesn't. And this is this is maybe the, the paradox of, of the, everything you've just mentioned there. Even in the the discrepancies and the things that are not ideal, you can kind of see why it was those things. There's a core in each of those things that m- contributed to his success. So mm. I look at the I look at the BBC thing, for example, which as as I say is, is is not ideal at all. But even in that action, it was about protecting and fighting for one of your own. In this case, is his son, and he was a, a father figure to a lot of those players with referees as well. You know, it's it's about us versus them kind of mentality and and. There was a lot of times he would uh, he would talk about a certain referee in a press conference, which you're not really meant to do, and it would be you know they're not protecting Cristiano Ronaldo enough. So in the next game, Cristiano Ronaldo's getting free kicks. They're making sure that he's getting free kicks, and he, he just kind of considered all angles. So even in even in those um, those uh, discrepancies, as I say, that you yeah. can there's something in there that makes Ferguson successful. Graham, I think that's a great point. Uh, I think the the best example for me would be the time that he banned slash refused to speak to Man UTV uh, because they <laughs> criticized his selection, formation, and approach to a game. And I think it gets sort of blown up into this, like they spoke negatively about him, and so he refused to speak to them for a while. But I think what you're getting at, Graham, is more accurate. It's that why is our own coverage belittling our players and tearing them down and exactly. criticizing them? That's not what you're supposed to be doing. And... I think you can object to that if you believe, like, no, it's it's free and fair press. They should be allowed to talk about whatever they want. But I think if you are an employee at Manchester United in that era, if you're taking that gig, you sort of know what you're signing on to, which is working under, in if you want to be unkind, like a dictator. I mean, he controlled all aspects of that club. And so if you're going to work for him, you know what the expectations are. And I think it was the us versus them thing. And it was also protecting his own against people who he didn't feel like were representing his wishes. So there we are. I think that's a pretty good assessment of Sir Alex Ferguson and a pretty good explanation of what he's all about. One Ryan, final... can I ask one quick question? Sorry. Yeah. I, you mentioned, I, I, like, I was really, really wondering about this one, and I, I'm asking you both and I will be quiet because I think it's an interesting conversation to be had. The Paul Pogba thing mm. was for so long seen as a major knock against him that here's this potentially generational talent who he didn't play. He brings Paul Scholes out of retirement, famously, to have him play in the midfield instead of playing Paul Pogba. Pogba goes to Juve and has all this success. But now with the way it's gone when he returns to Manchester United and how it has been, if not a failure, then certainly not the success that was expected. Was he wrong about Paul Pogba and Manchester United, specifically about Pogba fitting into Manchester United? Not not in terms of the way Pogba is as a as a player now, but one of the things with Ferguson was there was always a, there was always this idea that he could take maybe a, a, a I'm reluctant to call Paul Pogba troubled because I'm not sure that is a that is a fair reflection, but you get what I'm saying, you know, a flawed character. Ferguson, like a there was this idea with it's Ferguson he could take this disposition, I would say. It's yeah, the same exactly. Sort so you could like, take yeah, you could take Cantona and turn him into a very useful team player. Um, there was always that idea with Paul Gascoigne. I think uh, Ferguson said one of his b- biggest regrets was when Paul Gascoigne does he go to Tottenham or La- was that Lazio? One instead. of his yeah, so he goes to Tottenham rather than Manchester United. And Ferguson, one of his biggest regrets is that he didn't sign Paul Gascoigne because he felt that maybe rightly or wrongly he he, he could have pointed him in the right direction. So I I guess maybe Ferguson with Pogba Pogba maybe needed that father figure and maybe Pogba was let down by Ferguson in that sense but in terms of the player Pogba is now and has become for Manchester United I think I think Charles Ferguson has been entirely justified and I also think he's been justified in the whole Mino Raiola thing that comes with Pogba as well because Ferguson around that time famously says what's the quote again he wouldn't he wouldn't sell Mino Raiola virus or something like that or a cold um, or something like that that was Real Madrid selling Ronaldo he wouldn't sell them a virus is what he said right okay there's there's there is also some I'm sure there's a Raiola quote as well Um, maybe it's not the virus one but I thought it was basically he's a good call he 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 could have he spared Manchester United from from kind of dealing with Raiola and then Manchester United once Ferguson's gone just kind of entered that whole situation again yeah 
There are uh, one or two football agents I simply do not like, and Mino Raiola is one of them, Ferguson wrote in his 2015 book. I think there are many other uh, anecdotes, many of them that we probably cannot air on this show. <laughs> I saw that when uh, they initially made the offer to Pogba, I think it was for Pogba that Raiola said, like, I wouldn't have my Chihuahua sign this deal. And that appears to have been a breaking point for Fergie. So, yeah, I guess he didn't he didn't tolerate agents. He didn't love them. I guess yeah. he liked Gary Neville's agent since it was his dad. Uh, I like, but I like the that idea one, that I like the idea that Mino Raiola, when there is a contract offer that is yeah. to his liking, he gets the Chihuahua to sign well, that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why do it yourself? Uh, <laughs> I like. I do like the Real Madrid. I wouldn't sell those guys a virus, and then proceeds to sell them. Yes, the, sell the, them best, the best player, most expensive player in the world instead, <laughs> which is quite amusing. Here's, here's our greatest ever player. <laughs> yeah. I I do like, but I I this is a, a side note for a moment. I, I never realized until reading more about like the history of Manchester United how long that connection is to Real Madrid. How like interwoven the histories of those two clubs would be, dating back to and probably preceding, but the one in particular. I remember was the Munich air disaster when uh, Manchester United lose players, they lose staff, and I believe Real Madrid loaned them of like not a ridiculous number, but it's like seven or eight players the next season for them to be able to field a full team. And it starts there and goes on. There is this sort of connection between the two that is sometimes a rivalry and sometimes a friendly rivalry and sometimes just an out and out hatred, but then it comes back to friendship. And I don't know. So I guess I like him like protecting his own and standing up for his own club, but at the same time, maybe reflecting some of the history between the two. Mm. Um, Fergie loving nearly complete listener. One final question (laughs) for me, uh, for you both. Um, Could this ever happen again? Could a manager of his caliber ever have a dynasty like he's had again, the way the game's going, the way that managers aren't given a chance, the way just having that sheer level of success for so long. Graham, do you think, is it a one, you know, Um, that could ever happen again? I I think a manager can be successful over a similarly long period of time. I don't think they can be successful in the same way as how I would put it. I don't think, you know, Pep Guardiola, it, 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 I feel like he is maybe the example. At City, everything is in his favour. He's got the backing, he's got the money, everything. The, the youth academy is tailored to his specification. He feasibly could do 26 years at Manchester City, but he doesn't have complete full control over everything in the way that that Ferguson did at United so you know the recruitment and the scouting there's a whole department to that data analysis you know Pep Guardiola works with uh, uh, Tekichi Bergstein whose name I can never pronounce as, as the sporting director Ferran Soriano was there as, as an, uh, an executive as well that he would work with so there's there's huge kind of departments and moving pieces that don't always they don't all revolve around Guardiola and that feels like the way of a modern football club. So I, I feel like those days are gone where a manager can do everything on, on their own. But it, it would take a pretty special talent to do 26 years at, at one club. Even as, I, even as I was saying that there, Guardiola to do 26 years at City, uh, I can almost hear Taylor flinching at the thought of that. <sighs> Maybe the, the intensity Guardiola has means he would, he would flame out a little bit before he reaches 26 years. So yes, it would be very, very difficult. Just imagine I, I think... what he'd be wearing on the sideline in 20 years as well. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> Just be all aluminum foil because that's what people wear in the future is reflective materials. The only... I agree with with pretty much everything that Graham said, uh, and and I think the intensity of the modern style of, of play and with the manager I'm going to talk about particularly is maybe the only downside. But I hadn't really thought about this until preparing for this show. But if you think about a club that was down, like in terms of where it had been historically, it had not been winning. It had been sort of run poorly, and they bring in a manager who had had success in his domestic league, in a foreign domestic league at that, and he brings with him this spirit of intensity, this spirit of competition, this idea of sort of changing the DNA of the club. Jurgen Klopp has kind of done that and continues to do that at Liverpool. I thought Jürgen? it was going to be Ten Hag. New. No. I think it's. I, <laughs> I mean, that's it where could that was be. Good. I guess I did set that one up pretty well. But I mean, it's Klopp. Klopp. Klopp is Liverpool at this point, and it feels like the the supporters love him and love his disposition, his personality, his intensity, whatever you want to go with. It seems like he has that same feuding ability with the media and to get into it with rival coaches, with rival players. Uh, I think he 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 definitely backs his own team. He seems to have a lot of control in how things are run and in the operations of Liverpool. It's strange to think that it, it could be him. Again, I don't know if 26 years is as likely, but I think it requires yeah. the right situation and a basically a willingness of ownership or the front office to say, 
you know more than we do. We're going to slowly turn more and more control over to you because thus far it seems to be working. With Ferguson, it worked for 26 years. We'll see how long it works for Klopp at Liverpool. Yeah. I think I think that's a, a good observation, Taylor. I think Klopp is the, probably the closest there is to Ferguson in the, in the modern game right now. And what a blunder it was for Manchester United. I can't remember if it's after oh. Ferguson or after Moyes, but one of the two. It's after Moyes. Ed, after Moyes. Ed Woodward goes to Dortmund to meet Jurgen Klopp. Jurgen Klopp is open to the idea of being the new Manchester United manager. And famously, Ed Woodward tries to sell Klopp on Manchester United by saying it's the Disneyland of, of football, Disneyland of soccer. And that is just not what Klopp wanted to hear. And he goes to Liverpool and the rest, as they say, is history. He wanted the Universal Studios of soccer. Liverpool. <laughs> it's crazy because yeah, I remember, flags. Graham, I remember once it seems like it's not going to be Klopp. That's when I started seeing the reports and the rumors about actually there are these stories about how Klopp is really hard to work with. And he's this very fiery personality who will scream at staff. And we're not sure that's kind of the identity we want. And it's like, well, first of all, like everything I've read about Sir Alex Ferguson is that he did plenty of that himself, but also to now see like he's very fiery and he's very passionate and you look at Jurgen Klopp and it's like yeah that's his entire brand you all saw that as a negative that's troubling that's not great indeed well I think that brings us to the end of our chat about Sir Alex Ferguson a very good chat it was to gents Taylor Rockwell thank you very much for your time Thank you all for listening to me just go on and on and gush <laughs> about a man who I, I genuinely do think there are reasons to idolize, if not fully idolize. You enjoyed this one, Taylor, and we enjoyed you, you Graham Rutherford. Thank you, Ryan Bailey, and apologies to all the Leeds and Liverpool and City supporters <laughs> who switched this one off after five minutes. <laughs> As if they ever switched it on. <laughs> yeah, true. Listener, thank you very much. We'll be back on the feed next week with another one, but for now, catch you later. Catch you later. 